A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Word of the Lord. Last week we began together a course of study, if you will, a series of times of contemplation would be another way to look at it, or a series of sermons, if you want to call it that, focused on answering a question that is asked by one of the more popular Christmas carols that I actually think of more as a lullaby. You know the carol. It goes like this. What child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. That's a really, really, really good question. The lullaby goes on to answer the question, of course, but if you think for one second that you can answer the question and then just go on, you're wrong. It's a question we should ask every day. A question we should answer every day. A question with which we should wrestle and contend and think and pray and struggle and discuss every day until you have no more days left. At that point, then, we'll let the child take over from there. What child is this? Who is Jesus? What's Jesus all about? Knowing Jesus, Christians believe, is a lifelong quest for us. It's not the kind of situation where at the end we will finally find out who Jesus is. No, we can begin to know Jesus actually even before we know Jesus. Hopefully, there are people in your life who are teaching you about Jesus before you know anything. That's what baptism kind of is. 
But the fact is, is that no matter how well you know Jesus, you can know Jesus better. And in knowing Jesus, then we follow. In following, then we experience life. That's kind of what the whole Christian thing is about in a nutshell. And so we are continuing on our lifelong journey of learning about Jesus. We're going to be thinking specifically about some of the titles that are assigned to Jesus, some of the names that are given to Jesus, some of the ways that the first people who met Jesus began to think about him, some of the ways that we still describe him. In the earliest written biographies of Jesus, and let me stop right there and explain what a biography of Jesus is. A biography of Jesus is not a biography of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Just say amen and go with it, okay? No. <laughs> the four Gospels are not really biographies of Jesus. They don't just say, on such and such date, Jesus was born in such and such a place, and all this stuff happened, and then he died. That's really not why Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote their stories about Jesus. They wrote Gospels. They wrote so that we would meet Jesus ourselves. They wrote so that we would know Jesus ourselves. They wrote so that we would follow Jesus. This is biography with a purpose, biography with an agenda. It's a gospel. It's a proclamation. All of the gospels proclaim lots of things about Jesus, but the first one, we believe, was the gospel according to Mark. It's the shortest one, it's the most succinct one, and it begins where Mark thought it was important for us to begin with Jesus. Did you notice the words that Rick read? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. Mark hits us straight between the eyes with a proclamation of who Jesus is. He does not mess around with all of the somewhat insignificant details as far as he was concerned about the birth of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? If you want to read about the birth of Jesus, don't ask Mark. Mark wanted us to know Jesus the adult, Jesus the man. And he tells us from the beginning what we need to know. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right there you have it. What is arguably the single most important and influential and revealing title for who this baby is that was in Mary's arms. The Son of God. Now as Mark introduces us to Jesus, he tells us a story that is so rich with meaning that we could take six or eight or 82 weeks just to think about the appearance of John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, how John came into the first century Palestinian world and said, folks, God is getting ready to do something here that's been part of his plan ever since the beginning, a plan spoken of 750 years ago by Isaiah, a plan that now is coming to fulfillment in someone whom God is going to introduce to us. We could talk for a long time about that. We could talk for a long time about the significance of the Jordan River 
about the importance of baptism and repentance and forgiveness. But Mark doesn't waste much time with that. Mark says there was this guy named John, and he said God was going to appear. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walks onto the stage, and he's baptized by John. And a voice comes down from heaven, and the voice says, You, Jesus, are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. Boom, there it is again. You are my son. That's what I want to focus on today. What did Mark and Matthew and Luke and John and Peter and Paul and Mary and Phoebe and Lydia, what what did they all think they were saying when they said that Jesus is God's son? What do we think we are saying when we say that Jesus is God's son? We say it all the time. We sing it in songs, we confess it, we see it all over the place. Jesus is the son of God. But what do we mean? Let's put this in some kind of a context for ourselves. Let's admit, first of all, that as Christian people, We believe that Jesus is the Son of God for lots of different reasons. We need to have that out on the table as we talk about what being the Son of God is all about. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God in part because Jesus' life fulfilled the prophecies about the Son of God that were expressed all throughout the history of the Jewish people. The way that Jesus appeared, to whom he appeared, when he appeared, and especially what he said and what he did are all revealed there in the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the others in the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons we believe. But there are many, many other reasons. We believe that Jesus was the Son of God because of the miracles and the power that he expressed. Jesus did things that nobody else could accomplish. Now, truth be told, there were people in Jesus' time, as there are people in our own time who claim to have miraculous power, but none had it in the same way that Jesus had it. None got the attention that Jesus got because of his miracles. That's another reason. But there are lots of other reasons. One of the reasons we believe Jesus is the Son of God is because of his teaching, because of the authority with which He taught about who God is. It was noted long before his death and resurrection that Jesus spoke of God in a very special way, a way that nobody else ever had before. And so that's why we believe Jesus is the Son of God. But there's more to it than that. The single most important reason that we believe Jesus is the Son of God is because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you in this church have heard me preach on Easter for over 20 years now. You're still coming back. It's a total mystery to me, but you're still coming back. And what you hear from me every Easter is this simple fact, that without Easter, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ain't got nothing. That's it. That's it. Lots of people spoke with authority about God. Lots of people were interesting preachers. Lots of people claimed to do miracles. There are all kinds of things going on in Jesus' life that other people kind of got close to, but nobody 
Nobody came back from the grave like Jesus did. Now because of that, lots of people began to believe that Jesus was, is, the Son of God. And as you and I look at the history of the church, I at least am impressed by the fact that such an amazing faith grew out of such an unpromising beginning. One of the reasons I believe Jesus is the Son of God is because you and I are here today. I can think of no other good reason to come to church. Not the incredible choir, not the comfortable pews, not the delicious donut holes, not the entertaining preacher. I can't think of any good reason to come to church except for the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have to talk about that. Now, I can say that partly because of my inner conviction of faith, and you say it for the same reason. Somehow or other, this Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the news about Jesus, the hope that we have in Jesus, all of that speaks into our hearts in some way in a mysterious transaction that God begins that we confirm that gives us faith. We believe. Sometimes against evidence. We have hope sometimes when it's hopeless. Something in us says, yes, this is right about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we could talk about that for a long time too, but, but we have to go on to think about what are we saying when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, let's fill out the meaning of that term a little bit. <clears throat> All throughout the Old Testament, there is discussion of the Son of God. That phrase is used very often. Sometimes the angels are called sons of God. Sometimes the kings of Israel are called sons of God. Very often, the one king that Israel was still waiting for, the Messiah, would be called the Son of God. That should come as no surprise to us because actually within the broader context of the old world, the world in the time of the Jews, many people talked about sons of God, not just the Jews. If you were a king, if you were a military leader, if you were a powerful and important person for the Romans or the Greeks or the Assyrians or anybody else, you were often referred to as a son of God. It was a way of saying this is an important and special person. Why then would Christians say, <clears throat> that Jesus is the Son of God? Were we merely trying to express <clears throat> that Jesus was special, that Jesus was important, that we thought he was a really cool guy? Well, in some sense, yes. When the first, the first people who knew Jesus started to try to describe Jesus and explain Jesus and come up with a way of understanding the miracles or the wisdom, or the unique things that Jesus said and did. They said, wow, he's, he's a son of God. They didn't really understand completely what they meant, I don't think. Not until after the resurrection. What they meant to say, and this is part of what we mean to say, is that Jesus is like God. 
you know, a great military leader, a very wise teacher. There's something important and, and special about those kind of folks. There was something important and special about Jesus. And so they said he is like God. But one of the reasons that the people would say that so long ago is because of an interesting fact about the Hebrew and especially the Aramaic language that all the people spoke around Jesus. Now, this might seem a little bit weird to you here, but we're going to have a little language lesson right now, okay? <clears throat> do you all know what an adjective is? Yeah, pretend that you do, okay? <laughs> pretend that you do. An adjective is a word that describes something. Like, this is a really luscious piece of fruitcake right here, right? Okay, that's an adjective, right? This is, a, this is a, a beautiful painting. Those are adjectives. In Hebrew, there were very few adjectives available to use. If you wanted to say something was like something, if you wanted to describe it, you would say it would be a son of something. If you wanted, for instance, to say that a person had an explosive personality, you wouldn't say they had an explosive personality. <clears throat> you would say they're a son of thunder. Get it? Okay. If you wanted to describe, I'll just use a personal example, Jan. If you wanted to say, if you wanted to describe me, okay, you would say, Jack is like a son of Tom Selleck. Okay? <clears throat> Does this illustrate this question for you, right? You're a son of something to describe what something is like. When we're trying to describe Jesus as being like God, we're saying he is a son of God. Jesus expresses the nature, the character, the personality, the very being of God. And that's important to say because we all want to know who God is. We all want to know what God is like. We want to know what God is up to in the world. We want to know how we can get ourselves in a good relationship with God. Well, we understand all of that as we get to know Jesus. It goes further than that, though. Jesus is not just like God. Jesus is God. That was a conversation that the early church had for the first 350 years or so of Christianity. If you think you have a hard time understanding some things about Christian faith and maybe it's tough to learn, don't worry, everyone does. It took the church 350 years to agree on a way of talking about who Jesus actually was. There were lots of folks early on who said that Jesus was a really, 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 really good man. And that when he showed up at the Jordan to be baptized, God said, you're a really good man. I'm going to adopt you as my son. But that's not what the voice said to Jesus. The voice said not, you will become my son. I am going to make you my son. The voice said, you are my son. And so the church came to realize that Jesus was, as John would later say, in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. We don't often use the Nicene Creed in our worship. It's a little more complicated. It takes longer to say, but the Nicene Creed is probably the most important creed of all Christian history, even more so than the Apostles' Creed that we often say here. The Nicene Creed is accepted by Protestantism. It's accepted by Catholicism. It's accepted by the Orthodox churches all around the world. Christians agree that the Nicene Creed tells us something about who Jesus actually is. The Nicene Creed was first written down in the year 325. It was changed and jiggered with, as committees are often wont to do, until the year 381, and then it was adopted by the church. It says this. It says that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. With all of that language, the church was trying to say that we believe that Jesus is not a created son of God, like a normal father and son relationship would be, but that Jesus is God. From the very beginning. He is separate and distinct from God the Father in his manifestation, in the way that we experience him, but he is the same as God the Father. Now, what I've just summarized for you in about two minutes, people have been writing about for the last 1,800 years, and they haven't stopped, and it's only going to get worse, I'm afraid, because how do we understand the mystery of one who is a human being, yet also a divine being. How do we understand the relationship between God, the creator of all that is, and yet God who is present with us in this first century Palestinian Jew? And then to complicate it even further, how do we understand the movement of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit? Well, we don't understand it, but we keep talking about it because it expresses our experience of God. It tells us important and true things about God. In the person of Jesus, we have the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Not a Son of God. Lots of people want to say that all people are divine in some sense. No, the Son of God, the unique, the only one who is begotten, not made. Now, if some of you are saying right now, I don't totally get it, Jack. Good. <laughs> because we don't. You don't have to totally get something to affirm its fundamental truth, to affirm its life-changing power. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God because Jesus believed he was God's Son. This one who was resurrected, one and one only, always talked about God, his Father. In terms that nobody had ever used for God before. Abba, this is my daddy. This is the one with whom I am intimately connected. This is who Jesus is. One other thing. And let me just tell you right now, this is one of the most frustrating things that a preacher can try to talk about. Because I need six more hours 
just to give you an introduction to the topic, <laughs> right? When we say that God is Father and God is Son, you and I think in terms of normal human relationships. The Father comes first, and then the Son comes along later. It's not what the church would say. The Father exists, and the Son also always has existed. Father and Son in Christian theology are more about how it is that the Son expresses and embodies and is the reality of the Father like father, like son. They're one and the same substance. All of that is a way of trying to express that this first century Palestinian Jew was more than just that. That he was a single unique event and moment and person and reality with whom we must continue to deal. I have no hope whatsoever of explaining all of this to you because I don't fully understand it myself, but I do believe it. And the more I study it, the more I learn about it, the more fully I appreciate who Jesus is. And that's ultimately the place to which we have to go. If you say, if you are going to confess in a few moments in the words of the Apostles' Creed that Jesus is the Son of God, then here's a few things that have to happen. Number one, you and I must give our ultimate and final respect to Jesus and Jesus alone if he is God's son. Nobody else comes close. We all have our heroes. We all have people that we look up to. Sure, that's fine. Jesus is in a category unique among all others. There is no one else who models, who represents, who embodies God, as does Jesus. We're not in the dark about God. Lots of people want to say, I can't know anything about God. How do you know this about God? Well, I know it in faith because I know Jesus. When I say that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm saying something that should change and inform and infuse and direct my whole life and yours too. One of the reasons I say that is because this Jesus, who is God's son, said to all who would listen to him that we could become children of God too. He didn't mean that we could become divine, no. But he did mean that we could have the same intimacy, the same love, the same power, the same hope, the same conviction, the same peace that Jesus himself had because he knew the Father and the Father knew him. My job, your job, is to spend the rest of our lives getting to know him better and better, following him more closely every day, allowing him to speak into the deepest parts of our lives so that one day we will meet him in all of his glory, so that one day we can say, Jesus, it's so good that you were here. It's so good that you came to save the world because only you could. 
someday I plan and I hope to meet the Son of God in glory. And I hope you do too. Amen.